1: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In a world that celebrates overnight success, it's easy to forget that very often, achieving your dreams takes a heck of a long time. My guest knows this all too well. You may know Stephen Pressfield as the best-selling author of books like The Legend of Bagger Vance, Gates of Fire, and The War of Art. But as he details in his new memoir, Government Cheese, it took more than a quarter century for him to become a published novelist. Today on the show, Stephen talks about what he learned in that journey and the many odd jobs from driving trucks to picking apples that he took along the way. We discussed the lessons Stephen gleaned that apply to achieving any dream, including how to overcome a propensity for self-sabotage, get your ego out of the way, finish what you start, and develop the killer instinct. This is a great motivating conversation on learning not to pull the pin on important commitments in your life, and we'll explain what that means coming up. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is pressfield. All right, Stephen Pressfield, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be back, Brad. Thanks for having me. You got a couple new books out, but one we're going to focus a lot on today is called Government Cheese, a memoir. And uh, what's interesting about you is you're a successful writer. You've published 10 novels, one of which, The Legend of Bagger Vance, was turned into a movie directed by Robert Redford. You've also published several nonfiction books geared towards you know, creative types, entrepreneurs, and I think what a lot of people don't realize is that you didn't get your first book published until you were 52 years old. And I think you know most people would imagine you were publishing books from your 20s and 30s onward. I'm curious, did you know you wanted to be a writer in your 20s? And did you think finding success as an author would take as long as it did?
0: Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't.
1: But here's, here's the story. When I was,
0: I guess, 22 or something like that, I got a job, my first real grown-up job, as a copywriter at, at an ad agency in New York City, and I had a boss named Ed Hannibal, who wrote a novel called Chocolate Days, Popsicle Weeks, which is a real, the real thing, and it became a hit, and he quit, and he was like a star, and so I said to myself, well, why don't I do that, you know? So, so I quit and uh, tried to write a novel and totally, you know, was, I had no business even thinking about doing something like that. It was just total immature, idiotic thinking the thinking that something was going to be easy, was going to be a piece of cake, you know, just, I'll, I'll just walk into it and it'll be fine. When obviously that was not the case. And my life from there on sort of ran off the rails completely. So, I sort of backed into the concept of writing. It wasn't like I wanted to do it or I really thought that I, you know, this was a, a goal of mine. But it's like once I kind of, the bottom dropped out of my life, it was like the only way that I could get back, in my mind anyway, was to sort of write my way out of it. So I, the next 27 years or however long that was, was just sort of trying to, uh, you know, what went wrong with the first novel was I got 99.9% of the way through, and I choked and blew it up, blew up my marriage, blah, blah, blah. So in order to sort of redeem myself in my own eyes, I sort of had to write my way out of that. And that's kind of how I I got on this 27-year passage through the wilderness,
1: so in uh, Government Cheese, you take readers through what you did with your life between your first novel failing and then until you got The Legend of Bagger Vance published. It's called Government Cheese. Interesting title for a memoir. What's the story behind that title?
0: Well, what people today might not know in this day of food stamps and other sort of voucher programs that feed the hungry. But uh, back in the day when this when this story took place, they had the Department of Agriculture and state departments of agriculture had programs to feed the poor and they literally would give away enormous blocks of cheese, government cheese. It would say USDA cheese product, you know, number one, whatever. And there would be, in addition to that, there would be things like, like powdered milk or dried beans, pinto beans, black-eyed peas, that kind of stuff, canned peaches, whole, you know, you could totally live off of this stuff. And when I was driving trucks, one of the things that was part of this odyssey here was that we delivered this surplus food to poor communities. This was in North Carolina, out on the coast. And that was a real, one of the most satisfying things I did in this whole time, because it really helped people, you know. And I also have a whole metaphor for it of how it relates to to writing. If if we want to get into that at some at some later date, but uh, that's what the government cheese title means.
1: When did you sign up for this long haul company? where you are delivering? You know, not only you're, sometimes you're delivering tobacco, you're delivering this government food. When did that happen, and why did you sign up to become a truck driver?
0: I think I was maybe. 28 or 29, something like that, and I was trying to get back together with my wife back in North Carolina, I was dead broke, and I went to a trucking school, you know, one of those one-month things where they teach you how to drive a tractor-trailer, and I just couldn't get a job. I, you know, applied everywhere, 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 and uh, I. this was something that I really wanted to do because I felt like I I had to get my life on track again with a, a kind of a job that would pay the rent, you know, and that had some hope of stability to it. So finally, I had just gotten fired from another job and was driving out of town. I'd sort of said goodbye to my wife, given up on that whole thing. And I stopped at this one final trucking company that I had applied to before and been rejected a couple of times. And the dispatcher was a guy named Hugh Reeves. And the first book inside of Government Cheese is called Hugh Reeves. It's dedicated to him. He hired me. And so that kind of got me into that world, which was a world that I never thought I would be into.
1: And in, in this part, talking about leading up getting hired by the trucking company, you talk a lot about shame. Like you, just, you just felt ashamed all the time, early in adulthood. So, you know, early 20s, through your even your 30s what were you like feeling shame about cuz i imagine that a lot of young men might feel this similar shame
0: well in my case it was because you know i, I quit this job in advertising to write a, to write a novel right i thought i was pretty cool and i had a young wife and she supported me and like i say i got right up to the one yard line and i totally choked and blew it so i was ashamed of myself before my own self for failing like that. But then I was ashamed because I had let my wife down. You know, I'm supposed to be a husband, I'm supposed to be a provider, or at least I'm supposed to be, you know, a person that can finish a job, even if you fail at it, at least you should finish it. And so that was sort of the great shame that that I had. And also I blew up the marriage by kind of acting out in ways I won't need don't need to talk about here on the show. But Enough that I felt like I had really screwed up my wife's life as well, you know? And so I carried a lot of that shame for a long time, and which in a way was a good thing because it was certainly a motivating force to keep me going forward.
1: And, and you also talk about there was just moments, too, at the trucking company where you just biff something up and you just beat yourself up. It's like, oh, I, look, I, like, here I am. I'm being a screw up again. I can't even do this simple trucking job right either. Yeah. I mean, that was somehow
0: for me, my demon was self-sabotage and self-destruction of just getting in my own way. I would just screw things up as if there was some demon inside me that was just waiting to, uh, you know, would make my hand to do something that my head didn't want it to do. And The thing about driving, you know, tractor trailer over the road big rigs is when you screw up, you screw up royally. You know, it's a big mess. So I was just fighting for years and years this tendency within myself to get in my own way, to sabotage myself. And later on, I'm sure we'll get to this as we talk more today, Brett, when uh, I wrote the book, The War of Art which was about this internal force that I call resistance with a capital r that's where my idea of resistance came from from my own demons and uh, and the fight to try to overcome
1: them and were you still trying to write during this time like you were you know working the the big rig thing and then moonlighting as a writer was that still happening
0: no i absolutely wasn't in fact i um once that first book sort of went down in flames It was like I said to myself, this was a crazy mistake. I never should have done it. I'm never going to think about it again. And so during this this time, I never did try to write anything. But the weird thing, it's almost like a character in a story, I kept my typewriter. I had my typewriter with me the whole time. And I just never got it out until one particular moment a few years later when things turned around for me.
1: So you, you talk about when you were the long haul driver, you would oftentimes deliver government cheese, and especially you, you deliver them to like rural churches in the South. What did you learn about life and writing while making these deliveries? You know, it's it's funny that the lessons you learn
0: in these kind of jobs that have nothing to do with your true calling, which in my case was writing, are not direct lessons it's not something that you can use immediately or you can, you know, write about or use as subject matter but you learn deeper lessons like one thing that that happened when i was driving trucks is i dropped a trailer one time talk about screw ups if you've ever seen a trailer come unattached from a tractor and crash that's what happened to me that and it was my fault totally and so a few days later, somehow the, the boss, Hugh Reeves, who was who had hired me, he didn't fire me for that. But a couple of days later, he took me out to, to lunch at this hot dog place in Durham, North Carolina, just to have a talk. And he said to me, he said, son, I can see that you're going through some process in your head. I can see you're living out some kind of something. He said, I don't know what it is, and I don't want to know what it is. But what I want you to realize is you're working for me, and your job is to deliver loads. That's all your job is. When I send you out on the road, I don't care what's going on in your head. You've got to finish the mission, whatever it is. And so that was an amazing sort of moment for me. a really come to Jesus moment for me. That almost anybody else would have known that from their whole just any just growing up, but that was something that I've used forever since then, and particularly as a writer. That you know when you're when you're a writer, you're completely on your own. You have no boss. If you take on a project and you start it, there's nobody that you have to report to to finish it. It's all up to you. It's all self discipline. And so many times I've sort of had a vision of Hugh Reeves in my head saying that thing to me, I don't care what your issue is, your job is to complete the mission at all costs. And that has worked for me over and over again to to just remember that.
1: And then you also talk about when you would make these deliveries to these churches, you were just driver, right? The, the, The people were very friendly, very polite. Uh, had that southern hospitality, but they'd just say, "Driver, take your truck over here, and uh, we'll take care of everything else." And then when they were done unloading the things, they say, "Driver, thank you for your time." They didn't care who you were; you were just driver. You were just there to, to deliver the goods.
0: Yeah, which was kind of odd to me at the time, you know, because I I made. I mean, we did a lot of other loads other than surplus food, but. I probably delivered maybe 40 of those loads to different churches all over the place. And it was always the same. For I don't know why it was, but they would always address you as driver. You were anonymous. And they didn't want you participating in any of the offloading or anything like that. I would go smoke a cigarette, you know, over under a live oak somewhere and just, you know, be an observer, which I considered to be a real privilege because these scenes were so Human, you know, and so heartrending that, you know, I, I just considered it a privilege even to be part of it and particularly be a part of it that was helping, you know. But later on, as a writer, I started to think that writing was a lot like this. Like when you're a writer, you're delivering a load, and the load is the book and the content of the book, and you hope that like government cheese or surplus food, you hope it's going to be sustenance for somebody. But yet you, the writer, you didn't make the cheese, you know, you didn't harvest the pinto beans or, or can the peaches. All you are is a vehicle to deliver it. And nobody really cares who you are. They're just there for the material, which I think is exactly as it should be that, uh, You are anonymous. You know, I'm a big believer in the muse and in other dimensions of reality and that kind of thing. So I really felt like that particular load where you're anonymous was a real uh, metaphor for what the writing or any artistic uh, endeavor is. You are you're a vehicle and you're not the maker of the stuff.
1: I think that's a good point because I've noticed there's a tendency today with a lot of the social media stuff for creatives like writers or even entrepreneurs to really think, talk about themselves and like, you know, what they go through. And it's, I think it can be useful in some instances, like you do that a lot with your work, kind of give insights to the process. But sometimes there's something about when you get yourself or your ego too attached to your, whatever it is, the work that you're delivering, mm-hmm. it messes it up. It just doesn't land the same. I think it's
0: absolutely true. In fact, I would say that any artist's task as they're developing from a neophyte to somebody that's capable of doing work is to somehow get past their ego. And as long as their ego is there, it's going to screw them up and they're never going to get it right. You have to, I think, deliver from another place. You know? And I also think when you start to think that you're the one that's creating this, you're in trouble too, because it's not true. You you are getting it from somewhere else, from some other level of, of reality. And your job is to be enough of a professional and to be enough of on top of your craft that when you get this kind of transmission from the cosmic radio station, that you're capable of delivering it in a digestible form to people on this material plane if you know what I'm talking about, Brett.
1: Yeah, and it to uh, your other book, uh, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants To Be, you talk about this, like the ego, and there's this great chapter. It says, when we try to sing or write or dance from the ego, we fall on our face. It is impossible to sing or write or dance from the ego. And I think that's true. And like, that's what's happening to you. You're getting, you're, your ego is getting in the way of yourself. That's why you probably choked on that first novel. Yeah,
0: for sure. And my ego was totally connected to my tendency to sabotage
1: myself. How do you overcome that, right? Like, what did did it take for you? Was it just like you had to drive the trucks and do these jobs not related to the writing for you to finally figure that out?
0: I mean, I do think, you know, I'm doing a kind of a a video series on Instagram now that, that I'm calling In the Wilderness. And it refers to the kind of passage That we all sort of have to go through, I think, where we're kind of outcasted from what we would call our normal world. And we sort of, it's like an analogy would be the Odyssey, Odysseus's story by Homer, you know, which was his 10-year Odyssey. That's sort of the the granddaddy of all legends that have, have to do with this. And where I do think you have to suffer. And you have to be humbled and uh, you have to have this shit kicked out of you one way or another before you sort of finally get to a point where you, in, in a way, not even in a way, I think it's absolutely exact where you give up and that giving up is a giving up of the ego. You know, where you just say, I can't fight this anymore. You know, I mean, I I just can't do it anymore. And some shift happens in that point, at that point. It's sort of like someone who has a problem with alcohol finally saying, I'm defeated by this. I just can't, I don't have power over this. Help, you know, somebody help me, you know? And and, w- and when that person makes the decision, okay, I'm going to join the AA or I'm going to quit or I'm gonna, whatever it is they're going to do and change my life, that's, I think, the same thing that happens to anybody that's trying to, to find who they, who they are
1: and what their calling is. No, so tying this back to the legend of Bagger Vance, it's based on the Bhagavad Gita, right? And was it- So
0: you're a great reader, Brad. It's great you, that, you, yeah. <laughs> that you know that.
1: And uh, I think uh, like at the beginning of the, the Gita, Juna has that moment where he sees this epic war going on, and it's like family against family. And he's like, I, I don't know what to do. I can't and that was his surrender moment.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, actually I had never thought about that before in that in that terms, but it's exactly true. Like in in screenwriting, you know, that was another career that I had sort of along the way here. There's a term called the all is lost moment. Have you heard of that before Brett? Yeah. And that's that's what Arjuna was in and that I think in our real life We need to get to one of those, Uh, and maybe we need to get to many of those, because that's the only way real progress, I think, is made, when you run into an absolute brick wall and the resources that you've called on in the past are not sufficient to get over that brick wall, and you have to somehow find something somewhere.
1: Right. That's when the ego dissolves. And that's when you can receive, like, I know you're a big fan of like divine help, the muses. That's when you become more receptive because the ego has finally fallen away. Yes, exactly. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Okay, so you did, you did this long haul thing. Still weren't writing during this time. You left that job because they were rearranging. They were going to make you like a set of an employee, uh, a contractor, and you're going to be in charge of your own truck. You left, and then you you, you took a job picking apples. What was going on? Like, why that? Like, How did you end up doing that? <laughs>
0: Well, there are a few other things between the two. And one of them was that I, I did start writing a book. And I had, in fact, it was a book about the trucking company, a novel. And I had saved money. I worked in New York in advertising for, I don't know, a year or something. I'd saved 2700 bucks, And I moved to a, a small town in Northern California and just to write. And I did for, I think, maybe... 20 months and then I ran out of money. And so I thought it made sense to go do this migrant labor thing because it was something that you could, you could go, you could make money, you could come back and you'd have enough, you know, I'd have enough to finish the book. So I sort of stumbled into that thing kind of by accident. And so again, it wasn't like a plan thing or anything, but it was just you needed money, a thing in, on, on the fly.
1: When you're working on the second novel, were you still haunted by those previous demons of you just sabotaging Absolutely. yourself? Absolutely. In
0: fact, the whole, because with the first book, I couldn't finish it. That was, that was my self-sabotage demon. I couldn't get to the end of it, you know? And so with the second one, when I went to go, you know, do this migrant labor, I still hadn't finished it then. So it was very much in my mind, I got to finish this son of a bitch, you know, one way or another, whatever happens to it, you know, I don't care if a guy throw it in the trash, you know, I got to finish it. So yeah, that was very much in my mind.
1: So you took the job, like what, what did you take from that experience picking fruit? And then there's this, I want to talk about this, this phrase you picked up there, pulling the pin. What yeah. does that
0: mean? Ah, it's a great question, Brett, and it's right on target here. Now I don't know what migrant labor is like today, but back then, it was done. It was like the Depression in a way. It was done by what they call fruit tramps, and these were guys that would follow the harvest, and most of them were alcoholics, winos, and uh, the the joke is, a tramp is an itinerant worker, a hobo is an itinerant non-worker. And a bum is a non-itinerant, non-worker, <laughs> and uh, so a lot of these guys were at least heirs of the riding the rails school of of tramp life. And when a car is uncoupled from a, from a train, the trainman pulls a pin out of you know between the, the coupling of the two cars. So the phrase "pulling the pin" means to quit something. So, like, you would wake up in a bunkhouse in the morning, and somebody would be missing, and you'd say, you know, hey, what happened to Harry? And he'd say, oh, he pulled the pin. So, for me, that was absolutely on target. I, had like, pulled a pin on this book that I tried to write. I pulled a pin on my marriage. I pulled a pin on the trucking company, where I really just bolted. I just couldn't do it anymore. I bolted. And so, I was absolutely determined, you know, not to do that. But The demons were there. And actually, like I said, the the first book in Government Cheese is named after Hugh Reeves, who was my mentor or boss at the trucking company. And the second book, which was about fruit picking, is named after a guy whose name I didn't even know his last name. I just call him John from Seattle. And he was a guy uh, who was a great picker and uh, one of these hardcore road guys and he knew, he just sort of sussed out, sussed it out in me. He could see what I was struggling with and he wouldn't let me, he kind of rode me, wouldn't let me, you know, sneak out of it in any way. And he would come over to me, and when I was in one of these moments, and he would just sort of tap me on the forehead with one finger, with his forefinger. And what he meant by that was, it's all up here, kid. You know, you gotta get your mind right. And For some reason, again, this is one of the sort of lessons that you learn that stick with you forever. You know, so thanks to him, I did get through that thing. I did finish it out. Oh, here's one thing just for whatever this is worth. It's a silly detail, but I thought it was interesting. The way you pick apples or any kind of fruit is they will pay you like three quarters of your salary for what you do, but they'll hold a quarter of it back. And... They'll give you that as a bonus if you finish the season. But if you don't finish the season, if you pull the pin, you lose that bonus. But yet still, so many people don't make it to the end that the the, uh, the Orchards or whatever it is, they make a lot of money off of that. So in any event, thanks to John from Seattle, I did finish that and I did finish the book, even though it never got published.
1: Well, yeah, what happened then? So you actually finished this book. You didn't choke and stop, not like the first one. You finished the second book. What were you hoping? Like, did you, did you really think like, this is it? This is going to be my big break? No, uh,
0: <laughs> no. Um, I mean, I, I sort of had, uh, you know, crazy hopes about that, but uh, I just wanted to finish it. And actually, I write about this moment in the in The War of Art, which was... The moment when I finally finished that book, and this was before computers, so it was on a typewriter, so you actually had a stack of pages, and when you finished a book in those days, you would roll the last page out and put it on the bottom of the stack. And I looked at that, and I thought, you know, I did it. Nobody knows that I did it. Nobody cares. It doesn't make any difference to the world or to anybody, but I know. And I will say this to anybody that's listening that has that same sort of demon in them. I, I have found over the years since then that once you defeat that demon, you'll never have any trouble finishing anything again. And I never have. But getting over that hump was a, was a big one.
1: And not only do you know, right? Like By finishing something, you're able to show yourself you can do this the muses know as well. You talk about this, it's chapter 49 in uh, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants To Be. It says, the goddess is like Santa Claus. She knows when you've been naughty or nice. I'm not being facetious. Somehow, by some mechanism unknown and unknowable to mortals, the higher dimensions see and know what's going on down here on the material plane. When you and I put your ass you know where, the muse notices and she responds.
0: I think, you know, as I, I wrote it, and I believe it completely. That when we're trying to do anything creative, we're our role is to connect to the higher dimension, whatever that is, to our self, capital S self. And that, you know, the Greeks thought of gods and goddesses there. You could think of it as the quantum field or something else if you looked at it another way. But somehow they do know, the goddess knows. and... And she does reward you, and she does grant you respect. And I, I felt that in that moment too, Brett. I felt like, even though I couldn't really put my finger on it, I felt like I'd scored some points with heaven, even if I didn't score any in the material world.
1: I mean, that's an important distinction. I think sometimes people expect everything they do to have some sort of public recognition. You make the point that that's not the most important thing. Like The most important thing is that, that private recognition, because that's what's going to keep you going.
0: Yeah, the, and the most important thing, period, is to keep going. Because if you think about it, I mean, if you and I wanted to be brain surgeons or concert pianists, we would say to ourselves, well, okay, it's going to take, you know, 15 years or something, full time to get to that place. But yet, when people think about writing or acting or something like that, they think, well, I'll just slip into it and it'll be fine. I mean, that's what I thought, like an idiot. And so the, the, the main goal is to just keep going, to find the sustenance, the emotional sustenance to keep going. Because at least in, in a field like writing, where you can write till you're 80, 90 years old, it's not like professional football where your career's over at uh, you know whatever age, you do get better. And the state that you were in when you were 30 is not the state you'll be in at 45. You'll be much better and so on and so forth. So the name of the game is to find the wherewithal to keep going because you do get better and you can get closer to the dream
1: by just keep hammering away. And so after okay, so after the second book, it didn't get published. Did you just keep writing? Like you are like, well, I finished that one on to the next one.
0: Yeah, I went on, I did, I did, I saved more money, and I was driving a cab in New York City at that time, and, uh, and then I, I wrote another one that also didn't get published, couldn't find anybody, and at that point, I said to myself, talk about an all is lost moment, I said to myself, okay, I've done three now, you know, and uh, it's probably a total of seven years full time, in addition to all the other work, just trying to support myself. And I just don't have it in me to do a fourth one. I I can't do it, you know? And that was an all-is-lost moment for me, followed by an epiphany, where the epiphany was, let me move to Hollywood and try to write for the movies, figuring that, you know, I failed as a novelist. Why don't I fail as a screenwriter, too? So that kept me going for another 10 years. So after this third novel, how old were you? At this how point. old was I it's a good question I think I was 30 let's see 38 something like that
1: okay so yeah I mean you're hitting middle age uh, at this point point. and uh, let's talk about this so you know we've talked about you did the truck driving you did the fruit picking also during this time from your 20s until you know through your 40s you did you did a stint as an oil field worker you were a school teacher you worked at this rural doctor's office you drove a taxi when you look back, on the diversity of jobs you had? Like, do you think they shaped you into the man you are now and the writer you are? Yes. Uh, Yes.
0: I know that that's not the kind of thing that people do anymore as a kind of a the University of Hard Knocks type of thing. But for whatever reason, if I look back on it, I needed to do it. You know, I grew up as a sheltered kid and I needed to get my butt kicked a little bit. And so, yeah, I really do think that, that although I never set out to do any of those things, if you, if you think about those jobs that you just rattled off, they're all the kind of jobs that require no skill other than trucking that you actually have to know something. But the other things are things you can just walk in. If you got a pulse, you can do them. So, but like I say, you, you learn lessons along the way that passage through the wilderness is, is necessary. I
1: think. Okay, so you're about 38. You've given up writing novels because none of them were getting published. And you start writing screenplays. And you found some success in writing screenplays. You started to make good money. You started to be a pro at it. But then at a certain point, you decided to leave screenwriting and go back to novels. I mean, what led that decision? Like what led you to say, I'm going to quit this, this thing, this thing that I'm making money on and go back to writing another, another novel? Uh,
0: that's another great question, Brett. This again is kind of a uh, reinforces my belief in the muse. The novel was The Legend of Bagger Vance, and it just kind of came to me one day. The idea came to me, and but it came to me as a book, not as a movie. And I had an agent at the time, a good agent who had worked really, really hard for me to get me established. And I had a meeting with him, and I said, I have good news, and I have bad news, and I have worse news. I said, the good news is I've got an an idea that I'm in love with, because the bad news is it's a novel, so you can't help me. And the worst news is it's a novel about golf, which is like the dumbest subject that anybody could possibly write a novel about. So he basically fired me, and he, and he was right to do that. So the question again, Brett, it wasn't like this was a conscious decision on my part. Oh, I'm going to now try to write a novel it just the idea came to me and that was the form it came to me in and i was absolutely seized by it and had to do it and at the time that i was working on that book i thought this is the dumbest idea i've ever had it's completely uncommercial nobody is going to want a book on this subject and they certainly are not going to want it as a movie but to my amazement they did so that was kind of how when once you write one, then you know you get a chance to write
1: another. Well, why do you think it was a su- success when your other novels had failed? Like what do you what 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 changed? Did you change? Was it the circumstances? Was it both? I
0: think for sure, I wrote that story from a different place than anything else I had done before. Now, some of the screenplays that I had done, particularly ones that never got Saw the light of day that just kind of circulated in the town, but never got made. Some of them were really good. They had really good ideas, and it's, you know, they were really good, but they weren't completely from my heart in the sense of they weren't coming from that other dimension of reality. They weren't coming from the muse. And the legend of Bagger Vance was, I mean, even as I was writing it. I thought, like I say, I thought, this is crazy. Who's going to like this? You know, I love it, but who else is going to? It's so different from everything. And so I think I had finally turned a corner, maybe by paying the dues for all those years, that finally the goddess said, okay, I'm going to give this guy a break. But for whatever reason, I was writing it from a different place and it was coming out in a different way. And... When I was done with it, I felt a kind of a pride that I had never felt before. Where I really, before I'd been able to appreciate some of the the best screenplays that I'd done, the ones that never got made. I thought, you know, these are good. These are really good. But I had never really felt like, you know, on my deathbed, I'll be proud of this. And I felt that way about the Legend of Bagger Vance, the book, not the movie. So that was, that was a huge turning point, and that really is where this book that we're talking about, Government Cheese, ends, because at that point, I really had become a working writer, a pro writer that had found my own calling and my own groove, and the story from then on really is just a question of serving the craft and learning the craft,
1: well, and then, accompany this book, you published this book. We've been kind of talking about it. Put your ass uh, where your heart wants to be. What do you mean? Because it's a, it's a pretty provocative title. What do you mean by that? And like, I mean, maybe did you learn these, this idea from your, just your varied life you had before Legend of Bagger Vance?
0: Yes, absolutely. This phrase, "Put your ass where your heart wants to be," I, I don't even know. Uh, I I don't think I stole it from anybody. I think it's my original thought, but. I've had it kind of rattling in my head for like 10 years. And the idea of it is simply that it's another way of saying commit. When you say put your ass somewhere, you're really talking about your heart, you know, your your physical body, the commitment to where if you fail, you're gonna it's gonna hurt. And there's something magic about making that commitment to whatever it is and you know you were talking before about how heaven does notice the gods notice and they do notice when you put your ass where your heart wants to be like people say okay how do i be a writer i want to be a writer my answer to that is sit down in front of the freaking typewriter and start doing it if you want to be a painter put your ass in front of the easel if you want to be a dancer get into the studio. There's something magic about putting your physical body and putting your commitment, your commitment from the heart into whatever it is you want to do, where your heart wants to be, what your dream is, that good things happen. I'm sure that when you started the, the art of manliness, there was it was a leap, I'm sure. And I'm sure that you were putting your ass where your heart wanted to be and whatever issues, you know, I don't know the full story behind this, Brett, but I'm sure that things started breaking your way at some point in ways that you couldn't account for because the gods and the goddesses notice it and the universe does intercede and intervene in your behalf when you put your commitment where you really live, where your heart wants to be.
1: No, yeah, I started this while I was in law school, and so my time was limited, but I committed to publishing three articles a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I stuck to that schedule religiously, and that meant I had to get up early and you know, crank out an article, and yeah, there was, it is a point where those, I had those breaks come my way, and then now, you know, it's my wife and I, and we're still, you know, we try to be pro about this. It's like we have a schedule, like Monday, Wednesday, we're going to have a new podcast up, Tuesday, Thursday we'll have an article new articles up. We've stuck to that for for years. And like, you know, sometimes things go awesome, sometimes you know things don't land, but we just try to be consistent with it as much as possible. And
0: and it's I mean, it takes guts to do that, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of people talk about it, but very few people actually do it. So, I take my hat off to you. You know, you you got into this thing before a lot of people got into it, you know? You were one of the first people And uh, it it took even more guts then. So uh, the success that you've had is well-earned.
1: Well, thank you so much. And and I'm curious, how do you keep that commitment going for the long term, like keeping your ass where your heart wants to be when when you're not experiencing any success? What did you figure out that helped you? I mean, for me, I had, in those wilderness years,
0: I had no plan B. You know, every time I tried to sort of go straight, get a regular job, I just couldn't stand it. You know, I couldn't stand going through the door that morning. And I've heard that from a bunch of other people who've been in the same kind of situation. So there was really kind of no way out of it for me except to keep going forward. And it was very clear.
1: Well, you have this idea in your book about self-reinforcement. What do you mean by that? And how do you develop it? This is a question, Brett, kind of about
0: How do you last over the long haul? Because there are going to be long, long periods when you're not getting any external, you know, third-party validation. And the only way to overcome that, those periods, is you have to validate yourself. Self-validation, self-reinforcement. And they don't teach you this in school. If anything, they teach you the opposite and certainly social media teaches you the exact opposite social media teaches you to validate yourself based on number of likes number of followers and all that bullshit right but the true reality is you are the only judge of your own stuff and your own endeavor and your own commitment your own progress and uh, so self reinforcement is is really self talk and a lot of times it's almost inane and silly and embarrassing when you think about it but you do have to sort of basically look in the mirror and say to yourself today was a good day you know we didn't make any money today we didn't move the ball you know you know 3 inches today but we tried as hard as we could and we and we stuck by our guns And validating yourself for that and learning to make that stick so you believe it is is more important, I always say, more important than talent. And I believe it's absolutely true because talented people are a dime a dozen, but people that can actually stick it out are very, very rare.
1: You talk about uh, John Keats and this idea of negative capability. And uh, I really like this idea a lot. And you quoted him from a letter that Keats wrote to his brother, George, and uh, he gets to this idea of self-reinforcement. And I'll read it here. This is what he says. Several things dovetailed in my mind, and at once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, in which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is, when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. So self-reinforcement is just, you know, being able to, you know, when things aren't going your way or you don't know if things are going to go your way, still being okay with that.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. It was the idea of being uncertain, being racked by self-doubt, but
1: keeping going. You also talk about developing a uh, killer instinct that, you know, writers, creatives, entrepreneurs need to have that. What do, you, what do you mean by that, and what does it look like? In a way, for me, like I was talking,
0: my demon was finishing something, right? I'd get right to the end of it, and then I'd choke. And I think one of the ways I defined that for myself later was I said, I don't have killer instinct. I gotta be, I'm locked in a struggle with this freaking book, and I've got I've to gotta win This is a war and I have to win. And from that point, I always decided I've got to have killer instinct to just bust through however hard it is and kill that son of a bitch.
1: No, yeah. I think that's something I'm seeing my kids start to develop, right? Like you see this in sports. When uh, kids first start playing sports, they're kind of timid. Like A lot of some kids just have that natural killer instinct, like they're naturally aggressive. But some kids, they have to learn it. This reminds me of there's this great analogy of Hector and Achilles. Achilles, he was just born manly, right? He just had that because he's he's this divine being. Hector, on the other hand, it talks about in the Iliad. He had to learn how to do it. I think a lot of people are like that. They have to learn how to develop that killer instinct, and it's tough. Like I don't. I don't there's really nothing you can do to tell your kid except like be aggressive, and like they ask, what does that mean? And I I have a hard time even explaining to my kids like what I what I mean by that. It just but it means just like going for it, like just just going for the ball and not caring, like you know, within the rules, but not like not being like you have to like lose your self-consciousness and just care about scoring the point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really a, a question of risk because if you fail, if you go for it and you fail, you lose, right? And then you have all that terrible feeling, you know. But like Seth Godin, has this he uses the phrase shipping. Are you familiar with what he says about this sort of stuff? Yeah, I, I did. But you, know, let other people know. He figures if you're Steve Jobs, and you've got you've been working on the iPhone for the first time, you know your company's got it together. There comes a day when you got to ship it. You know, you got it comes a day when you have to say, okay, there may be some you know glitches in here. But we can't keep noodling with this sucker forever. We got to ship it today. That's killer instinct to push the button and make it go. Because if it fails, then who knows what the consequences are for your career. But Seth is a great uh, believer in shipping. When something is ready, don't noodle with it anymore. And that's killer instinct.
1: So you're approaching 80 and you're still putting out work. What keeps you going?
0: I am a servant of the muse, Brett, you know, I sort of take my assignments from her. And as long as she's got another one for me, I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. And that's kind of uh, that, that's the way I live my life. I live it kind of from that's the way. I live my life from the time when Bagger Vance first got published, when my life really changed and I became, you know, a full time working writer. So I'm, I go from project to project, and I become completely absorbed in it, and when one is done, I go on to the next one. And to me, this is another idea from Seth Godin, it's a, it's a practice, like a Zen practice or a practice in martial arts, where the end result, success, quote-unquote, is not the goal. The goal is the practice itself, and you hope that, you know, you'll have a hit here and there, or you'll pay the rent here and there. But mainly, I have a calling. It took me a long time to find it. And my the way I view my life is that I'm following that calling, and I'll follow it as long as I can still breathe.
1: This reminds me of uh, Stephen Covey. We had his daughter on, Cynthia Covey. She finished a manuscript that he was working on before he died about a decade ago. And it was about living life in Crescendo. This idea that you still have stuff to put out, even if you've, you've done well in your career. And he's a lot like you. Like, he, The Seven Habits didn't come out until he was in his mid-50s. And after he wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, family and friends would be like, well, Stephen, do you got anything? Like, can, how can you top that? Right? I imagine, like, I'm, maybe you got that question. Like, how can you top Legend of Bagger Advance, where Robert Redford wanted to make that into a movie? And Stephen said, no, I've got something better than... Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I mean, I've got this calling. It, it, it might not be as prolific as Seven Habits, but it doesn't diminish the importance of that work.
0: Yeah, I, I agree completely. There's a famous story about Cole Porter when he was writing songs for Hollywood where he had just written a song for some movie and they'd rejected it. You know, the studio or the director, or somebody had rejected it. And a friend said to him, Cole, what are you going to do? I mean, your song just got shot down. And he said, I got a million of them. <laughs> There's another trolley coming down the track all the time. And I think that's a that's a great attitude to have because to get a little mystical, Source, capital S, is infinite. And there is another trolley coming down the
1: track all the time. You just have to believe in it. You just got to be the driver. You got to become the driver. Yes, Right. Deliver the goods. Deliver the load. Right. Well, Stephen, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the books and your work? I'm on uh, Instagram,
0: just under Stephen Pressfield, and I have a website, and it's just my name, Stephen Pressfield. And in fact, if you go there right now, you can pre-order Government Cheese, a signed copy that will be hand-delivered by me, just about. And I'm in, you know, on Amazon and all those things, just like, you know, every other writer that's in business. Awesome.
1: Well, Stephen Pressfield, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks, Brett. Thank you for having me. My guest today was Stephen Pressfield. He's the author of the book, Government Cheese. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, stephenpressfield.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash pressfield, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanlius.com. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter, artofmanliance.com slash newsletter. We have a daily or weekly digest option. It is free. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us your review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you to not only listen to the Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.